In the name of Jesus, Amen. Today is the third Sunday of Epiphany, and we'll be focusing on the gospel lesson for today, uh, specifically the healing of the centurion's servant. And also we have the baptism of Joel, Simeon, Pierce. I think these texts go very well together. The healing of the centurion's servant from a physical paralysis, and the healing of Brett and Jenny's son, who was spiritually paralyzed this morning. Jesus healed both by his word alone. Joel was dead in his sins and helpless like this servant, but God made him alive and gave him life. So the text for today, the, just to give you the context of what's happening, this is happening after the Sermon on the Mount And this is most likely where the centurion heard of Jesus and heard him speak directly. And then this is happening immediately after that. And what we know about the centurion is this, a few things. First, that he is a centurion, uh, which means that he's a Roman soldier. He's in charge of a hundred other men, soldiers, very strong men. uh, And that the centurion is the backbone of the Roman army. Also, we know that this man is very wealthy. He's a very wealthy and successful man, uh, not only because of his uh, position, uh, that he was successful, but he also had servants. He could afford these sort of things. But Luke chapter 7 gives us some insight to who this man is. And it tells us that he built a synagogue for the Jews. Modern archaeologists have discovered this uh, synagogue in the past 40 or so years. And what they found was that this was a beautiful building. It was ornate. He used some of the best materials to build it. And you can tell how much this centurion loved God by how well he built that synagogue. Um, He put in the time and the effort and the money uh, to make it beautiful because of what he was hearing there. And he considered it beautiful. The third thing we know is that he was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, but he heard God's word and he loved God. He wasn't allowed into the temple. He wasn't allowed, and and Jews weren't allowed into his house. That's another aspect here. And the fourth thing we know is that his servant is suffering very badly. He's paralyzed. And this is a wealthy man, which means he could afford the best health care anywhere. And yet no one could help him. Nobody could help him, uh, his servant, move one inch. Now, we learn more about him, not only by who he is and his titles, but we also learn about him by what he does. In Luke chapter 7, he sends other Jews to go talk to Jesus. This is, keep in mind, this is a man's man. He's a centurion. He's fought in battles. He's, he bosses a hundred soldiers around day in and day out. He's rich and he is wealthy, and yet he approaches Jesus in humility. He's timid. He's shy. And he sends others to go break the ice for him. And and this is a very rare attribute for the wealthy or for the successful to be timid or to be humble in this way. He considers, this is what's amazing, you have this centurion who's a very successful, wealthy man who has a hundred men under him. He's in charge of all these things. He's the boss of all these things. And he considers this scrawny little carpenter 
to be greater and above him, that he can't even approach him in this way. So this tells you what he's thinking, the way he considers this man. Now, so far I've talked about uh, his position, his possessions, his actions, and we learn a lot about these things, but we learn the most about the centurion, not by those things, but by what he says, the words that come out of his mouth. And we learn about it through his confession, what he says uh, about Jesus. The centurion says this. He doesn't make a request, actually, if you pay attention carefully to his words. He simply says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Just a statement, uh, an indicative statement. Like we heard last week, Mary saying to Jesus, look, they have no wine. Uh, This is the same thing that's going on here. Uh, The centurion is saying, look, Jesus, I have someone at home who is paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. And he trusts that Jesus will know what to do. And Jesus will do something about it. And then Jesus responds is this. He says, in, in the English translations, it reads, I will come and heal him. Uh, but the context here, uh, when you consider it, it's more like a question. Uh, some commentators put it this way, that Jesus says, shall I myself come and heal him? Like he's asking a question. Okay, you told me that information. Okay, well, what do you want me to do about it? Do you want me to go there and heal him for you then? In other words, do you want me, Israel's Messiah, to go into the house of a Gentile and do this for you? And then here's the centurion's response. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And this is remarkable. This is an astonishing answer because he acknowledges his own total unworthiness. And he also talks about Jesus being merciful and powerful. So just to break down what he says, uh, the first part when he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The man knows what he knows. He is sinful. He knows he himself has sins. And he has sins that he's committed under his roof in his home. And he had no problem inviting other people to his house. No problem. Anybody could come in. He had servants there. People could come for a feast. But here he doesn't want Jesus to come into his house. Why? Because he sees him differently. And he sees that Jesus is the, is the exception. He's the only one who is sinless and holy and righteous. He sees them as God himself. I've heard some pastors and theologians say something like, look, here, the centurion is being modest. He's just kind of following the etiquette of the day, the cultural etiquette. Jesus was a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so that's really what's going on here. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, This centurion knows who Jesus is, and he does not want him to come under his roof because he knows Jesus to be the Messiah. And we know that because of what he says afterward. What comes next? He says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. Which means he ascribes full divinity to Jesus. Full divinity, all of it. That he is God. So the first thing, he asserts it. It's not that he may or he might be healed. No, he will be. You will be, Jesus will be merciful. He knows he's unworthy of it and yet he trusts that Jesus will do it. It's not that he can earn his favor. He knows that the Lord has come precisely for sinners. 
He does it because he's merciful. So the first thing he's asserting is that. The second thing is that he ascribes omnipotence to Jesus. He says, with a word, you can do what no doctor can do. What all the money in the world can't buy. This cure, uh, the, uh, the, the, the solution to this problem, nobody can find. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then the third thing he ascribes to Jesus is omniscience. He knows that Jesus knows. He knows that Jesus knows where he lives and which servant he's talking about him. He doesn't have to tell him his address or what is going on. He just says, Lord, uh, you say the word. And that miracle, that blessing will go to exactly the person that you know, (laughs) the person that you're thinking of. Without ever having been there, the Lord knows this. And the centurion knows that that the Lord knows. And then he says this, he goes on, Centurion says, look, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And here he's making this argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, I have authority over some things here, but you, Jesus, have authority over all things. And so much so that you just speak and it happens. I have some men under me, but you have all things beneath you, under you. And then the Bible tells us Jesus' reaction here. Uh, It tells us the internal reaction that he feels. Very rarely do we get this in the scriptures, but we have a glimpse of the internal emotions of Jesus. And here it says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He's amazed. He's astonished. Usually, this is the response that people have to Jesus but, uh, but, uh, uh, concerning the things that he does and the things that he says. But here, it is Jesus marveling at a human, at a person, and the person's faith. And this is God's reaction to man. And then he says, look, I haven't seen anyone in all of Israel, the people that I have come from, with this kind of faith. And then he tells the man, and he, he tells the others that this man will be in the kingdom of heaven. And then he heals the servant with a word. Okay, so what I want to get to is this, this main question. Why did Jesus marvel? What was this great faith that this man had? What was, what was the point of it? He confessed that Jesus was omniscient, that he was omnipotent, that he was benevolent, that is, he loves and is merciful to all. That, and, and this is all good and it's all true. This is good. But that is not what Jesus is marveling at. I think what Jesus is marveling at is this. That the man relies upon the word alone. And nothing else. That is the distinguishing factor between this man's faith and all of Israel's or anyone else's. This man relies upon the word alone, not on what he saw or what he felt or upon his own righteousness. He has this implicit trust in the word of Jesus and nothing else. This is where the man is beginning. And this is a great faith and a great trust and confidence in God's word alone. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because there, there is a temptation that Christians face. There are Christians who trust in the Lord's word. They do. They believe what the Lord says. But they don't trust in the Lord's word alone. They trust in the word of God and reason. 
as long as it makes sense or it's reasonable. Or they take the word of God and they believe him as long as their feelings and emotions match what he is saying. So that if he says, well, uh, you're forgiven, well, I don't feel forgiven. You see? Or that you're holy and righteous and you say, well, I don't feel that way. And so they, they take their emotions and they say, well, I need to have a confirmation. I can't just rely upon what the Bible says. I need to feel it. Or they look for an, 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 an experience, uh, this, uh, an intense emotion or a change in their life. That, Lord, if you did save me, if you did forgive me and wash away my sins and declare me righteous in your sight, then how come my life isn't any different? Do you see? Or they rely upon their good works to, to make sure that they're a Christian. So they look upon their own life and they take the word of God plus whatever, fill in the blank here. And they say, well, that is what my trust is in. And I won't believe the word until I see this, until I feel this and experience it or I see the change. The reason I'm preaching this <clears throat> is because all Christians, and now Joel, in addition, will be tempted by your sinful heart, by the scoffing world and the devil, to doubt God's word, to believe that Jesus cannot do and that he doesn't do what he said he would do. So you see people doubt the Holy Scriptures when they say that the Lord created this world, the universe, with his mouth by speaking it into existence, saying, let there be light and there is light in six days. That the scripture is reliable and inerrant and infallible. The world will try to get you to doubt this and not rely upon it. That they will try to get you to doubt and question the death and resurrection of Christ. They'll do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. And they say, well, how can it be? How can this be, truly be the very body and blood of Christ? How could it be for the forgiveness of sins? Even your baptism, that they will then make you question. The scriptures say baptism now saves you and you'll be tempted to rely upon something else plus that. Ultimately, all of these doubts will add up to the ultimate doubt, the main thing that the world is trying to get you uh, to abandon, which is the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Um, if they can get you to doubt this, then you've lost everything. Now, when these doubts come, you repent. You turn to Matthew 8 and you read this text again and you learn what the centurion knows better than you and I. If Jesus just says the word, then it will be done, whether you see it or not. Look, I don't... <laughs> I don't know how baptism works. I don't know. Nobody does. Um, I don't know how the Lord's Supper works. I don't know the science or the physics or the biology behind it. Nobody does. I don't know how forgiveness works or the absolution or the resurrection of the dead. I don't know how a dead corpse can stand up again and live. I don't, I don't know that. I don't know how a paralyzed person can stand up just by speaking. I don't know the rules about this or nobody knows these things. But what I do know is what Holy Scripture plainly says. Jesus says baptism now saves you. And it does. He says this is my body. And it is. 
He says, your sins are forgiven. And they are. He says, whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And they do. Joel, um, your parents brought you to church today precisely because they trust that Jesus does what he says. And while you were paralyzed in sin and guilt, spiritually dead, helpless, unable to be helped by this world and everything in it, your dear parents brought you to the font where Jesus said he would be. And they didn't ask for a sign from heaven. They didn't ask for lightning or a change or a feeling or experience. All they said, they came here and asked for one thing. Jesus, just say the word and my son will be healed. Say you're forgiven to him and he will be forgiven. Tell him he's holy and righteous and blameless and he will be. Tell him, I've saved you, that I've died for you, I've washed away your sins, that you're my child, you're my heir, you're my own. Now and forever, you are. Your dear Lord, Joel, and this goes for all people, Joel, your dear Lord thought of you this day uh, and had all of your days in his mind before you lived any one of them. And the Lord knows what great things you would do in life, he also knows what bad things you'll do in life. The mistakes and the regrets and the sins that you'll commit uh, against your parents, against friends, against other people, your husband, your wife, your children, your, sorry, your, your wife, uh, your children, and so on. But none of those sins deterred the Lord from dying for you or for any of you. None of them pushed him away from spilling his blood for your sake. So dear saints, what is true for Joel is true for all of you because Jesus said so. He is the Lord. He is the, the Christ who has come to save you. He loves you. He died for you. He resurrected for you. And soon you will see with your own eyes everything that Jesus said. Amen. Hear the words of this verse that we just sang. Increase my faith, dear Savior, for Satan seeks by night and day to rob me of this treasure and take my hope of bliss away. But Lord, with you beside me, I shall be undismayed and led by your good spirit, I shall be unafraid. Abide with me, O Savior, a firmer faith bestow. Then I shall bid defiance to every evil foe. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.